This is the SciDev.net podcast for science news and views on global development. I'm John Escombe. The sound you're hearing comes from a bustling South African street where heat waves are threatening people's health and are likely to get worse because of global warming. In today's podcast, we're on the road to discover how people and scientists are dealing with the situation. They told us, yes, it often does get extremely hot and uh, so much so that the overalls that they require to wear, they say they boil inside them and it gets so hot that under those overalls their skin blisters. We then learn about the lesser known applications of nuclear technologies and why for some nuclear is the solution to humanity's future challenges while others remain sceptical. The other example that is dramatic for, for human health is mosquitoes. We produce millions of insects and then we sterilize them using nuclear technology and then they copulate with the wild females and the population is going down, down, down. We discover how virtual reality bridges the gap between cultures and distant worlds and is now used as a tool to improve humanitarian outreach. The goal of the series is to connect the decision makers with the people whose, whose lives their, their decisions are impacting and an overview of the state of scientific research in the Muslim world, where research still lags behind, but is improving fast. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast, where we explore the world of science and international development. Well, it's that time of year again. Over the next two weeks, the member states of the United Nations will discuss the future of the planet's climate in Paris. However, this year there's more at stake. The parties will sign a legally binding agreement for global emissions reduction in an attempt to curb climate change and limit global warming to 2 degrees Celsius. But while people try to find an agreement at the conference, what happens in reality? Some areas of the world are already experiencing severe environmental impacts due to climate change and time for them is running out. From rising sea levels to extreme drought, it's developing countries that are most affected. One example is the city of Limpopo in South Africa, where people's well-being is at stake due to an increase in heat waves. Reporter Teresa Taylor has the story. They told us, yes, it often does get extremely hot, and uh, so much so that the overalls that they require to wear, which is those thick cotton overalls, um, they, they say they boil inside them and it gets so hot that under those overalls their skin uh, blisters. In some parts of Limpopo province in South Africa, it's over 40 degrees during the summer. Public health expert Angela Mathy and her team spent time interviewing construction workers about their experiences with heat. Um, they also told us about how they faint. They tell us about the mental health implications. So by the end of a very, very hot day, some of the workers said they feel very irritable and short-tempered. And they tend to go home and pick fights with their families. Um, and so it also has a consequence for aggression and violence. Heat. It may be Africa's new menace. 
The southern African area is expected to have a, a temperature increase that is twice the global average. Um, so heat um, is something that we need uh, to prepare for. But heat increases break down to more than simply being hot. It has a domino effect throughout the health system. My name is Mao Amis. I'm the executive director of the African Center for Green Economy. This presentation Mao's been studying different ways climate change, climate change affects health, health in sub-Saharan sub Africa. One is through the prevalence of food and water-borne diseases. Cholera, diarrhea. Second, through vector-borne diseases. Things like malaria. And thirdly, through HIV-AIDS. HIV-positive people are more vulnerable to illness. Because their immune system has already been weakened. Sub-Saharan so Africa has the highest HIV burden in the world. It affects those who should be the most productive, people aged between 15 and 49. Unfortunately, the HIV burden can mean a slow response to climate change. Another challenge that is related to HIV is that a weakened workforce will generally not have the capacity to respond timely to the challenges of climate change adaptation. So if you look at a country like Malawi, for example, which has been hard hit by HIV AIDS, studies have found the disease has, to some extent, affected institutional capacity to respond to some of these challenges. But African health teams are setting out to prepare for an altered future, being led particularly by scientists from South Africa. In, in sub-Saharan Africa, where we have huge inequality and we have the problem with people lacking basic services, that, that makes them much more vulnerable um, to diseases in general, but uh, climate-driven diseases specifically. Health expert Neville Swege and his team are using decades of health records to track how infectious diseases vary with climate variability. They're also working with Angela Mathie's team and scientists from Japan on an early warning system. A prediction tool. They think they can tell the weather up to six months in advance. Um, that means scientists can help hospitals to prepare Using that information then uh, and understanding the relationship uh, mathematically even between uh, climate variability and these diseases, we can then make some predictions about what the likelihood is of outbreaks of these diseases taking place. For example, hot weather has been linked to outbreaks of malaria. Angela says there are many reasons why knowing this is coming is useful. So we can have a conversation with the Limpopo Department of Health or the affected areas and say this is what we think is going to happen and let's talk about uh, stocking up on anti-malaria drugs so that you have sufficient supplies. Let's look at the leave rosters for staff and make sure that you have more than a skeleton staff on at that time. Send out your health promotion staff to remind people of the early signs and symptoms of malaria and the need to come to hospital early. So, so we can just, we can prepare both communities and we can prepare the health system to cope with an outbreak of disease associated with that weather pattern. So I think when people think about climate change, they're often encouraged maybe because people want to 
scare people into action. They yeah. are pretty encouraged to think about this almost post-apocalyptic type yeah. scenario. But it sounds like the work that you're doing is much more grounded in things that are probably already affecting some of the population, but with climate change could go from perhaps affecting a minority yeah. in certain groups to affecting a much larger percentage yeah. of the population. Yeah. Yeah, you've got it exactly right. I mean, that has been a principle of the decisions around what we work on in the field of climate change. We wanted to make sure that we choose product, projects that will obviously benefit uh, our, the South African population in the future, future generations, but will also benefit people right now. Because we have people at risk and who are vulnerable right now to heat waves. We've just never paid attention to them. Scientists are advising governments to make health systems more robust. By doing this, they can improve the lives of people now while preparing for an uncertain future. That was Teresa Taylor reporting from South Africa on the impacts of climate change on human health. We'll stay with us to discover how nuclear technologies are sparking debate with those who believe that they can make a difference in some of the most pressing global issues, from energy to health. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast, where you put science at the heart of global development. All 17 SDGs, from ending hunger and providing clean water and sanitation to conserving ecosystems, depend on how effectively we harness science and technology. Well, that was the idea penned in an op-ed last month by Yukia Amano, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, who also gave specific examples where nuclear science is helping to achieve the SDGs. But do the benefits of applying nuclear technologies to sustainable development always outweigh the costs? Our reporter, Kevin Pollock, brings you the story. When you think of nuclear technology, what comes to mind? Nuclear weapons? Nuclear reactors? Maybe even nuclear medicine? What about environmental monitoring and agricultural production? These are also nuclear science applications that can help achieve some of the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. It's amazing because we can help in eight of the goals. Aldo Malavasi is the Deputy Director General of the IAEA's Department of Nuclear Science and Applications. Right. And we are in the department exactly focused on the, the peaceful use of the nuclear science. He reiterated examples of nuclear science in the SDGs from IAEA Director General Amano's op-ed piece such as using radiation to induce favorable mutations in crops, like drought and pest resistance, in order to improve agricultural productivity and help end hunger, SDG number two. Using radiation to sterilize medical equipment and protect food from contamination, as well as medical radiology to diagnose, treat, and manage diseases like cancer, are all directed at improving health and well-being, SDG number three. The other example that is dramatic for, for human health is mosquitoes. 
So we have a, a large project we call this uh, sterile insect technique. We produce millions of insects in a kind of factory and then we sterilize them using nuclear technology and we release in the environment. And then they copulate with the wild females and the population is going down, down, down. Malavasi is directly involved in the mosquito sterilization project which is being tested for the first time in his home country of Brazil. Brazil is one will be one of the first countries to test this new technology, but that is with mosquitoes that transmit dengue. In Brazil, that's one huge human health problem. Uh, I would say it's something very promising uh, that we can also use this technology in another countries, for instance, Southeast Asia. We are talking with Thailand, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam and Singapore to see if we can apply this technology in these countries. But highlighting these types of nuclear technologies is part of the IAEA's mission. To promote and to show how important is the peaceful use of nuclear science is absolutely friendly, is absolutely safe and absolutely green. I would say it's difficult to find out uh, one technology that is safer, greener and uh, more powerful than nuclear nuclear application. There are some that disagree with Malavasi and don't think that all peaceful nuclear technology is applicable to sustainable development. This includes Hisham Zarifi, professor at the Liu Institute for Global Issues at the University of British Columbia. Well, I think we have to be kind of careful about lumping together all nuclear science and all nuclear technology. And I think that that does a disservice uh, to both the needs and the opportunities and the challenges that nuclear technologies and nuclear uh, science might uh, uh, might have in, in terms of supporting the sustainable development goals. Hisham's research puts him at the intersection of technology, development, and the environment, with a particular focus on energy. He uses nuclear power as an example of a technology not necessarily suitable for sustainable development. There are always trade-offs involved in any technological choices we make. There's always uh, opportunities that come, but also uh, costs that come along with those things, both financial and non-financial costs. Uh, I'll raise the nuclear power one because it's uh, most uh, directly linked to the types of problems that I tend to work on. Nuclear power is being seen as a potential solution to at least a partial solution to the, to our energy problems regarding climate change um, due to its relatively low CO2, not zero, but relatively low CO2 emissions. The problem with nuclear power is we really actually have not, still not solved any of the fundamental issues around waste disposal, safety, proliferation risk, um, and it also is a quite expensive technology. We have to remember that it's not the energy poor who really have been the prime cause of climate change. Right, and so to to turn towards high cost options to solve their energy problems because they're low CO2 has a certain ethical and moral aspect to it that we need to to really think about. My questioning of nuclear power is is not one that says you know this technology doesn't work. It's one that says there are these certain risks to the technology and certain problems we haven't solved with technology, and until we do so, we should be cautious about moving forward on that technology. And on the other side, uh, the belief that, that these technologies are not necessarily the most suitable for solving certain problems like energy access. But there is one point made by the IAEA 
that Hisham very much agrees with. I think that the director general is correct in thinking that science technology clearly has an important role in meeting the sustainable development goals, science technology of a variety of natures. And I think he is spot on in stating that we have to move away from a model in which science and technology and support of development is one and that's just technology transfer and that we have to really think about improving the capacity to engage in science and technology in developing countries uh, in order to solve local problems. We have to think much broader about technology collaboration and cooperation. The IAEA may have a broad mission with regards to promoting nuclear science. But it really is, on a case-by-case basis, whether a nuclear technology could and should be applied to achieving certain development goals. For some, like nuclear medicine, the answer seems like a resounding yes. But for other applications, such as nuclear power, the answer is not so simple. That was Kevin Pollock reporting on the benefits and pitfalls of peaceful nuclear technologies. Stay with us to explore the world of virtual reality as a tool to engage the public in humanitarian issues. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast with me, John Escombe. When we hear about humanitarian tragedies happening somewhere, we all sympathise for the victims. However, not many of us are able to empathise The thing is, empathising is much more difficult, absorbed as we are in our everyday life and what some call first world problems. Storytellers and NGOs have been reflecting for some time on how to reach more people and convey difficult messages in a more engaging way. As it turns out, virtual reality has such potential and today it's also pretty affordable. Our multimedia producer John Spall visited the Global Health Film Festival in London and learnt more about the new immersive technology. He sent us this interview. My name is Socrates Kakalides. I work for UNDP on their United Nations virtual reality series. I am the senior producer from the UN. And could you tell me something about the virtual reality series? So the United Nations virtual reality series is taking policymakers and decision makers uh, to places where their decisions are having uh, powerful effects. The goal of the series is to connect the decision makers with the people whose, whose lives their, their decisions are impacting. We've made uh, two uh, VR documentaries, uh, one called Clouds Over Sidra, which uh, is the story of a 12-year-old girl uh, from Syria who's in a refugee camp in Jordan. Um, that uh, virtual reality experience takes you through her life and explains to you a little bit about um, how she got there um, and how she is doing. And the second uh, virtual reality movie that we made, uh, called Waves of Grace, takes uh, viewers to Liberia where they meet an Ebola survivor who talks a little bit about her experience with Ebola and about what she's been doing to improve the the lives of others affected by uh, the disease. Why have you chosen to use the form of virtual reality? What is the difference between virtual reality and, say, using film or photographs to tell the story? So virtual reality has the unique characteristic of being in a fully immersive media. When you shoot in live-action virtual reality video, Um, and somebody watches that it feels like they're actually there. So virtual reality allows for people to experience places that they otherwise couldn't go and to meet people who they otherwise couldn't meet. 
and uh, through that process be able to share a space with them and uh, really understand uh, what their lives are like. How technically are you able to do this? How are you able to get that 360 view? So it's done with special cameras that shoot in multiple directions. Um, we take the video and then stitch it together. The virtual reality series is available on the Verse app, which can be downloaded onto any smartphone. Once on a smartphone, it can be viewed through an inexpensive Google Cardboard, which can be purchased for as little as uh, five pounds. We've been touring around the world with uh, virtual reality uh, headsets, sharing the experiences at uh, various conferences like the Global Health Film Festival here in London. And what would you say to those people who say, oh, this is just a gimmick, we've had 360 still imagery, 360 animations, what is the difference? Is it something that's going to have its time and in a year or two we'll move on to the next piece of um, you know, new technology? I'm less interested in the technology itself than in what the technology delivers and in so much that we are able to take people to places that they otherwise wouldn't be able to go to and meet, feel like they're really interacting and meeting with with people who they, they wouldn't meet in their everyday lives. I think that is a, a, a very powerful experience. I think as long as us in the creative community continue to create content that really excites people and, and allows them to have unique experiences, I, I don't think virtual reality will be just a passing trend. Does the UN want to develop this program, and if so, how? I think as long as virtual reality is able to uh, have that effect and connect people to disparate people around the world, I think it's going to be used by the United Nations and, and by every organization. One of the amazing things about working on this series is meeting other people from other organizations who are working in media who are excited about this work in virtual reality and, and, and want to VR experiences. And I, I think it's a testament to the, the potential of, of, this, of this medium um, that there is so much excitement. Do you think that this has a role for interventions in um, developing countries? So for, for use, for example, in changing behavior patterns in, in Africa, in villages, do you think that this equipment could be taken out to Africa and used in that sort of way? It certainly can be used anywhere and it can have a powerful effect on behavioral change. I mean, when you watch these experiences in virtual reality, they're modeling behaviors. We know that modeling behavior is a, an incredible way of, of, of learning. So um, I think about it, I'm, I'm from New York and I'm um, a physician in New York, and I think about the powerful effect that virtual reality can have on health behaviors in, in the developed world and, and where we can create interventions that can improve people's lives and, and health outcomes. That was John Spool talking to Socrates Kakaludes about the use of virtual reality to engage people in humanitarian issues. Muslim countries punch way below their weight in international science, despite around a quarter of all people on the planet living in the Muslim world. It's produced only a handful of science Nobel winners, but why? Multimedia producer Lou Del Bello spoke with academic Atha Osama to learn more. 
If you look at, uh, at for example, scientific data, uh, Muslim world obviously comprises about one fourth of the world's uh, world's population, but contributes a very small uh, percentage of the scientific papers. The state of research in a Muslim world is improving, but it still struggles to keep pace with the fast scientific development in the rest of the world. We've only had three individuals from the Muslim world who have won Nobel Prizes in Sciences and all three of them actually migrated from their countries and performed most of their best scientific work in the West. To address this ongoing problem, 11 experts on science research in Muslim nations teamed up to discuss the best ways to reform the field. The Task Force on Science at Universities in a Muslim World met for the first time last year and recently published its first stock-taking report, highlighting challenges and solutions. Athar Rosama is one of the report's authors. For example, we looked at the scientific productivity, publishing productivity, over the last decade and the previous decade for, for about 20 Muslim countries, uh, which constitute about 85-90% of, of all scientific output in the Muslim world and found that while they did much better in the previous decade than the one before that, which means that, that they've begun to do better in terms of publishing papers, their impact uh, was not as much as, uh, as compared to with a peer group of countries like Brazil and Israel. And the report also highlights encouraging trends. Uh, Muslim world seemed to do fairly well in terms of, for example, women participation in science. Um, with the exception of some countries, most notably Pakistan and Bangladesh, but the participation of women in science is almost at par, in fact, in some cases far more than in the West. Uh, uh, although uh, women in leadership positions are probably not as many. Um, so, you know, women are, are, you know, studying science in large numbers, but that does not translate automatically into taking on professions. And even, you know, even if they take professions, they don't rise higher in the ranks. So if Muslim research still lags behind, is it because people in this part of the world generally don't like science? So I won't say that people don't like to take up scientific topics. I think uh, the problem starts at the school. Uh, because in the, the early states, uh, you know, maths and science testing of students in the Muslim world uh, perform, you know, much worse than the rest of the world. So uh, by the time they enter the university, uh, the odds of their performing, you know, very well in science are already pretty bleak. One of the reasons, Osama says, is that in the Muslim world, kids get to choose between science and other subjects very early in their studies so that they have little time to really explore the subject and decide if they have a taste for it. So does the task force call for a radical reform of the education system? Well, you know, we have to start somewhere. So, um, you, know, uh, you know, obviously we are a task force of, you know, non-partisan private individuals who are, who are working in their private capacities. Um, we, we do not... Uh, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, direct influence on the government in the sense that we are not, you know, this is not a government mandated task force, right? This is a, a task force of private individuals. Um, so, uh, so, so, so what we've tried to do was to try to generate a debate within the Muslim world on issues of importance uh, to science, to, to the society and to the religion. In light of your findings, what's your vision for the future of science in the Muslim world? What changes are you open to spark? Uh, I think what we, we are recommending in our report is that we need to shift the focus away from you know, publications and impact factor 
and more towards trying to do meaningful science right because this has been going on for the last sort of 8 10 years in a lot of places in the muslim world where all focus has been on publishing and impact factors and you know this and that and uh, you know what it seems to have done is that in uh, you know people have just focused on publishing more and more papers uh, and sort of you know driving those numbers rather than to think actually you know you know what is important science what is it that it, uh, the, you know they need to do you know how does that link with with the society around them all that that was Ludel Bello talking to Atha Osama about the future of Muslim science. And that's all for this month from me, John Escombe, and from our team here in London. Do stay with us for more news and analysis on the world of science and development. Until next time, it's goodbye.